I would like to read, first of all, in the Gospel of John, again, John, this time in chapter 7. John chapter 7. And while you're turning there, I'll express my thanks to the assembly here, which I appreciate so much. Glad that Michelle and I could be here this weekend, enjoy the ministry and enjoy ministry in English, and to spend time with the believers here, and thanks for the confidence, as Andrew so eloquently expressed. We really feel that as well. Appreciate that very much, and trust that God will help us now as we look into the Word of God one more time for the ministry of the Word of God. John chapter 7, and we'll just look at Uh, Verse 40, therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? That's exactly what the scripture said. And what I would like to speak about, with God's help, and his blessing is another seven in the Gospel of John. Um, some brothers were talking to me about some of the sevens, and the classic sevens that are known are the seven I am's and the seven signs, the miracles before the death of Christ. But I want to look at a, a group of seven in this book. It's really the seven times where you have references to the scriptures that were fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. And here is the first one. There's actually a. Here it says, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem? But I want to look at it very practically. I'm very, very conscious of the fact that. You've heard a lot of ministry. And so I just would like to kind of have a one point message come at it from different angles as we go through this. And I want you to just look at what was taking place when these scriptures were fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. So here we have a reference. The people ask the question, has not the scripture said that Christ, number one, comes from the seed of David? Isaiah 11, 1, 2 Samuel chapter 7, very clear. The promise was given that he would come from the seed of David. That would be the line of his family. But not only that, you come to Micah 5, verse 2. There they got it from the scripture that he would be born in the town. Just a small little village called Bethlehem. Now, how did that happen? Luck? Chance? When it comes to the family of the Lord Jesus... His descendant, his history, a lot of people into Ancestry.com and Genealogy.org or whatever they are, and you chase, chase, can trace your genealogy. It's fascinating. When you go to Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, Matthew traces from Abraham to the Lord Jesus. There are 42 generations, and they're all traced down. And some of those people 
We know only about them one thing, their name. That's it. When you go to Luke's gospel in chapter 3, he gives us there that there are maybe, maybe as many as 77 generations there. All the way back to Adam or from Adam. You get the idea. How did it happen? Was it just random that, that finally when the time was come that God said, okay, Jesus will be born right there? I don't think so at all. The family life of the Lord Jesus was 100% under the control of God. There may be present here in this auditorium today people who have great questions or suffer great angst and anxiety and problems when they look back on their, their ancestry. And they ask the question, why, why was I born in this family? Why this family? You know, that happens when, in new work, when people get saved. And they start to get to know you and they ask about you. And I can check with my two brothers who are the genealogists in our family. I think it was maybe five generations at least. Heard the gospel saved in the assembly. And they say, I wish I had born in, been born in your family. My family. And then they start to tell you. Then you say, well, what about your grandfather? Never knew him. What about your grandmother? She was a drunk. And you don't want to ask any more questions. And they say, tell me about your mom and dad. I'll, I'll, actually, I'll invite them down. They'll come down and visit. And tell us about your grandparents. Well, I can tell you that my gr grandmother and my grandfather I used to visit them. And I can remember my grandfather praying. And you can just almost feel their, 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 their desire. What, why, why did I? Maybe there's somebody here like that. And you are struggling still. Struggling because people do struggle with those questions. Could I just remind you by asking you a question of a very important point? Do you think that the God who is in control of the birth and the family of the Lord Jesus was any less in control of your family and of your birth? I don't think so. He's the God who's in control. There's some people in the Bible who had very difficult birth experiences and family life. Just imagine Moses. My brother mentioned Moses. Moses is born, and a short time later after he is born, all of a sudden he's taken into a brand new culture. He is put in a palace with a family, and likely people speaking a language he may not have known. You say, what happened? God was in control. Take Timothy in the New Testament. Timothy struggles. My mom is saved. My grandmother is saved. My father, I don't know anything about the grandfather, but my father appears to not be saved. Why was I born in this kind of a family? Is that somehow going to limit me? No. Why? Because God is in control. I was thinking today of the delicate example. Imagine, imagine all his life. Pharaohs. You know who he is? I'll just put it this way. His grandfather was also his father. Talk about having questions. 
He's in the genealogical line of the Lord Jesus. Because God is in control. So no matter, maybe you don't have to do that. Maybe I don't have to do that. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ and, and folks who, who look back and they don't know who their parents were. Or they know who they were, but they died. Or they were separated. I hope we have the sensitivity. It just appears in the gospel of the Son of God that we are given this reminder that the same God who is in the control of the family line and of the birth experience, if I can call it that, the beginning of life, the same God was who was in, had full control when it came to the life of the Lord Jesus. I hope it will encourage us, encourage believers and friends here today. Was he not? Did he not have the same control in the, your experience when it comes to your family? He had to have. Because he's the almighty God who is in control. Now turn, if you would, please turn over to chapter 13. Chapter 13. We'll come across the concept of the scripture being fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus. Not his birth, where he was born and in what family he was born. But now when we come over here to chapter 13 and we'll look at. Verse 18, the Lord Jesus is speaking and he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He's talking about Judas. That the scripture. Why, why, why did Judas betray the Lord Jesus? It's because the scripture had to be fulfilled. Psalm 41, verse 9. Sometimes people get into this debate when they want to know, well, how could God, if he said that the Lord Jesus was going to be betrayed, how could he make a man not be saved so that that man would be a bad man and he would betray the Lord Jesus. You hear people talking like that. No, that's not the case. Go back to Pharaoh. Why did God take Pharaoh and harden his heart and make that man do all that he did? Because you have to read the whole story. And of course, the story begins that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Judas's choice to betray the Lord Jesus was because he chose that. It was all his choice. And so the principle I learned simply is this. That sometimes bad people do bad things. Bad people do bad things. Imagine the children of Israel under the hand of Pharaoh. As he cranked up the pressure. He lied to them. He was an awful man. And bad people doing bad things. We look back at it and all, what do we see? We see that God was in control. Imagine Joseph. His brothers take him and they mistreat him. They lie about him. He's hurting. They sell him. They never see him again. You say, bad people. Those, those men were bad. Bad people do bad things. But when it's all said and done, what did Joseph say? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because God is in control. 
How did it happen? We were reminded that Daniel and those young men were ripped away from their families and their comfort zones, taken off to, to, to Babylon. How did that happen? Because it was a bad man called Nebuchadnezzar who made a choice to send in his army and to attack Jerusalem and to take away those young men. But is there any doubt as we listen to the exposition of Daniel 9, as our brother spoke even just about that part, any doubt that God was in control? that he So he doesn't make that happen, but he does allow it. We have to agree to that. In his allowance, he allows what he's in control, even with what he allows, with what he permits. And so we come to the New Testament, and all things work together for good to them that love God. Do bad things, do bad people do bad things today in our world? There's a lot of hurting children. Because there's a lot of bad people who have done a lot of bad things to them. And there's a lot of hurting women because there's been a lot of bad men who have done a lot of bad things to women. And could I suggest to you that it is possible there could be very bad people in an assembly that do very bad things. And you can feel like, what happened? How did that happen? I thought, God, I thought, why would God? In the life of the Lord Jesus, a very bad man did the very worst thing. But the scripture was being fulfilled. It's a little reminder to us that even in that situation, God is in control. Come with me now to chapter 19. John chapter 19. This seems like a Bible study, but the hearing of pages turning means you're likely still awake. So that gives me encouragement. So even if you're asleep, please turn the pages anyway. John chapter 19, look at verse 28. Sorry, verse 24. We should pick up verse 1 from verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it by cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. I don't know what the statistical possibilities are. <clears throat> that there would actually end up at the life of the Lord Jesus at the end when he's at the cross that he would have five pieces of clothing and that there would be four soldiers. Why wouldn't there be five soldiers and four pieces of clothing? Or four pieces of clothing and seven soldiers? Why, how did this all work out? And really, when it's all said and done, does it matter? It's just clothing. You know what's even more impressive if you, if you go back and you think that they changed his clothing several times. And then they put on his clothing, and now they're taking his clothing off. And at the very end, they're just enough clothes 
so that there's one more piece, and that one extra piece is a piece they all want. Man, who wants a pair of used sandals? But they all want the one piece that's left over, this special tunic woven from the top, all in one piece. How does that happen? It's because the scripture was going to be fulfilled. And because God is in control. You say, really? I've heard people say, usually when they're trying to argue over issues related to dress and meetings, they always say, God doesn't care what, he doesn't care about clothes. Really? He clothed Adam and Eve. He put it in the Bible that Peter was, Peter was wearing when he was fishing. Does that really matter to you? And what he put on when he got out, when he went into the beach, when the Lord was there, John 21. And he put into the Bible what, what Joseph did when he, how he changed his clothes. Like, does it really matter that he changed his clothes before he went to Pharaoh? Do we really need to know that? Obviously, it's important to God. In fact, the Bible says that God, he takes on the responsibility, the array of lilies, and he clothes the grass. So please, don't make statements like that. Don't be presumptuous to think we know what God is not interested in. He's interested, and this is my simple point here. It's all simple. Here the simple point is, ever wonder whether God cares about all the little details in your life? Does he really care about clothes? Is it important that your tie matches your suit? If you want to know the answer, the answer is yes if you ask Rachel, no if you ask Andrew, right? I'm talking about other details in your life. Ever wonder and you think, I really hope to be able to talk to her. And, 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 and all those other people cut in and now she's gone. She's gone home. She left the conference. And, and the details, the details. Oh, don't look at me like I'm from a foreign planet. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the details. Everybody gets a promotion. The details. And the details of, the, of that exam, and it just wasn't fair, and the details. And you wonder, does God, is he concerned about the details of my life? Well, I would say this. If he's de- concerned about the number of hairs on your head, I think you can be pretty sure he's interested in the, all the other details of your life. He was interested in the very details of the life of the Lord Jesus, that the scripture would be fulfilled about his clothes. And do you think that the God... The God who was interested in the details, all the little details of the life of the Lord Jesus, do you think he's any less interested in all the details of your life? Do you think he's any less interested in your family background, your family history? Any less interested in your life when bad people do bad things in, you, in your experience, maybe in your assembly? The details. Now, you won't have to to turn the page. But if you just flip the page, I'll hear something and know somebody's awake. Just there in John chapter 19, just go down, if you would, from verse 24. Go down to verse 28 now. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. I don't want to be irreverent, but in the great scope of the crucifixion, is it really that important that the scripture be fulfilled about I thirst. Absolutely. Because it's the word of God. Because in Psalm 22 and in Psalm 69, 
Prophetically, the promise was made that the Lord Jesus would feel thirst. When did he feel thirst? Well, you remember that his ministry began with him feeling hunger. And now his ministry on earth, prior to his death, ends with him feeling incredible thirst. Hunger after 40 days. Thirst after all the experience of the cross as he comes towards the end. Actually, on the cross, I'm looking for help on this. Just by the way, it does say, you remember that they came and they offered him wine mingled with myrrh. Likely that anesthesia was not because they were feeling sorry for him. It was likely they used that to extend people's life so the suffering would increase. But it does say that the Lord Jesus tasted it. And he wouldn't drink. Why did he have to taste it? This is just, by the way, I just wondered that, you know, there were people who had the idea. Uh, I think it might be our Muslim friends who, who believed that there was a substitute for Jesus and that he didn't really die on the cross. And maybe others believed that he was somehow, he turned into some kind of a spirit. No, he wasn't a spirit. From the beginning of the cross, at the beginning, he's taking a drink. He tasted thereof. And at the end of the cross, he experienced he's taking a drink. He's still a human being. It's the humanity of our Lord Jesus. But this is the dark trial. And this is a time when the Lord Jesus is experiencing something he has never experienced before. He's never experienced this kind of thirst. Where his throat is so dried, it's like, a, like an old, dusty piece of clay. And his tongue is sticking to the roof of his mouth. That kind of thirst. Christians go through trials. Job went through a trial. Horrible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we heard about them. They went through a trial. Daniel's in a lion's den. Paul, Peter was in a prison. Paul's in a prison. Could I ask you today, are you going through any kind of a trial? Are you experiencing right now things that you have never felt or ever thought you would feel before. Because at that moment, it's very easy to think, how could this be happening? And where's God? Could I ask you, those of you, those going through trial today, tenderly and kindly, just to try and help you, do you think that in your trial, do you think that God who was in control of the trial of our Lord Jesus is any less in control of your trial? The Spanish hymn book that we use is a combination of hymns that were written for the first time in Spanish, hymns that have been translated, tunes that have been used, hymns that have been written. And there's one chorus in that hymn, in our hymn book, that has been translated, stolen, 
translated, and we don't have the hymn, we just have the chorus. So all we sing is the chorus. And a couple of the darkest moments, I, I know nothing about trial compared to some of you here, but in the darkest moments of, that I faced, some of them, this little chorus has really been a help to me. I thought it was a chorus, actually. I didn't even know because I just had the Spanish side until I was at the Belfast Conference, and I heard about a 1,000 people singing this hymn. And they wondered what the poor guy was bawling for on the stage. We don't have it in our Believer's Hymn book. So I'll just read you the chorus. This is what it says. God is still on the throne. And he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. He never forsaketh his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. Got the point? If God was so in control of the trial of the Lord Jesus that he would be, as the Lord Jesus experienced something he had not experienced before, if he was, in, do you think he's in less in control of the trial that you're facing? No. Dear brother, dear sister, God is still on the throne. Look down, if you would, please. In five minutes. Just want to look down now, if you would, down the chapter. And we will we'll look at verse 36. Got to cover three in five minutes. Here we go. Stay with me or sleep deeper. Verse 36. Look what it says. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Not one of his bones shall be broken. Can God protect his people in trials? 206 bones in the human body, according to Dr. Google. 26 bones in each hand, 27 in each foot. 50% of your bones are in your hands and your feet. 14 bones in your face. At least that's what I remember. If it's not, it's somewhere between zero and 50. Do you think for a moment when the Bible talks about the Lord, you know, bone was broken, that's bones were crushed. When those men took the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, and they cut it open, they very carefully protected and operated so because they were under divine instruction not to break bones. But when those Jewish men and those Gentile men walked up to the Lord Jesus, they were not surgeons. They were not priests with experience with knives. Could they have heard the sound of bones being crushed? It would have made their experience even more joyful. But they would never break a bone. They would never crush a bone. And when they drove nails through hands and feet, they would not break bones. Why? Because when it is the will of God that one of his own is protected in any experience, they will be protected because it is his will. I know we don't face, I don't want to face, face much trial. 
but there are believers who go into hospitals and they wonder whether they're going to come out. Just to know, do you think that, I'll ask the question again, do you think when it comes to protection that the God who protected the body of our Lord Jesus is any less interested in protecting you according to his will? Move to the next one. Just look, if you would, please, verse 37. Sorry, verse 36, this sec, uh, verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. How did the Lord Jesus die? By crucifixion. God would not allow it that he would die by being pushed off the brow of a hill by the sword of a soldier when he was a child. He would not die by stoning. He would not die by an awful storm in a, in a lake that would take him to the bottom. He would not die in any other way. He must be crucified. The Son of Man must be lifted up. You know, the Lord Jesus in John's gospel is very much makes us aware that God is in control of death. Remember Lazarus? The, when, it just you can see that God is in control of all this happened for the, the for the glory of God. And, and Mary, we've been hearing as our brother is reminded of Mary uh, talking to the Lord Jesus. And she didn't understand. She thought she did. And he didn't. It was actually the other way around. He's in control. And when Stephen died, remember when he was stoned? You say, where, where's God? Where was the Lord? He was right there. He saw him. He said, Lord, receive my spirit. He's right there. I'm looking at some of you young people, and you, you didn't give any thought today about your death. But as you get older, Christians do think about, actually, the experience of death, and it's an unknown experience. And there can be anxiety and questions and fears. And when you have somebody you love who dies, you can have questions, even whether it wasn't you, can you have those about somebody else? I just am enjoying this. The scripture was fulfilled. It tells me that when it came to the way and the timing of the death of the Lord Jesus, God was in control. And do you think our, that God, the God of our Lord Jesus, will be any less in control of the when and the how of your death? God is in control. Last verse, if you wouldn't mind, please. If I can steal one or two minutes. Go over to chapter 20, verse 9. 20, verse 9. Notice what it says there about the scriptures. The other disciple came to the tomb first, went in, two disciples go in, for as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. They didn't know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. You can just imagine those people when they thought, got him where we wanted him. Can you imagine what the devil thought? Ha! Master stroke, he's dead. He thought God is dead. At least the one who said he was. No, no, no. God is in control. He has full. Con he had full control of the future of the Lord Jesus after death. And it came that moment. They didn't understand it. They didn't understand that the scripture had to be fulfilled. They didn't understand the concept that that 
one who is dead, according to Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, he would not see corruption. He would be alive again. The scripture is fulfilled. So I just want to ask, just to remind you as we close this conference, when you look out in the future and when life is gone and you wonder about what's coming and you say, after that, I'll phrase my question one more time. Post-death, long-term future. Do you think that the God who is in control of the future of the Lord Jesus after death will be in any less control of your future and mine. He's already promised. The dead in Christ, the Lord himself shall descend. The dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain, we shall rise. It is going to happen. Could happen today. Why? trying to decide how to end my, my message. I got two options. Option A is, I say, why is all that going to happen? It's because God is in control. Option B is because I can say, God is still on the throne. Isn't it thrilling to have a God like that? That's what matters. To live our lives with this assurance. Whether it's the details, the trial, the looking back on birth, whether it's facing death or looking beyond it to the great future, may we appreciate today our almighty God, our God, is in control. May the Lord bless us.